beautiful. Thank you, Caruso. Wasn't that beautiful? Wow. Our speaker for tonight is Robert Falkenberg, Jr. He is currently serving as the president of the Chinese Union. That would be the one in the country of China, in the continent of Asia. So if you thought you traveled far to come to June, Alaska. He also served as a pastor here in the United States, served as a conference president here in the United States, served as a field secretary overseas, served as the conference president for the Taiwan Conference. He is fluent in Spanish and Mandarin Chinese. And if you talk to him, you find out he does pretty well with English, too. He has three grown children and one wife. That's a good combination to do it that way. His wife, Audrey, is the mission director for the Chinese Union. And she's here. Wave, wave Audrey. That's Audrey. I'm glad to have her here. Bob Falkenberg also has written a number of books. He was also the associate director of Share Him, which, as you know, is under the umbrella of the Carolina Conference. Of course, his father founded that ministry, Robert Falkenberg Sr. So we're blessed to have Bob with us this evening. And I, there's a few things I know about Bob. Bob loves the Lord. That's why he does what he does, and he loves souls. And he loves the remnant church of God, and he loves our mission. And he loves helping prepare people to be ready for Jesus. And isn't that what we're all about? Bob, I'd like you to join me. I'd like to have a word of prayer with you before you speak to us. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for Elder Bob Falkenberg and the life he's given for you and is giving for you. And I want to pray that you would especially send your Holy Spirit to him and to us as he speaks, that we would hear your words, that we'd be inspired to be more, to do more for the glory of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. And a good evening to each of you. This beautiful place. I feel, honestly, I feel like I'm home. Carolina was a place where I spent many summers. I was away in college when my dad was the conference president here. I called Porter two summers here in this conference in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and uh, also worked with Share Him. So I just feel it's just great to be back home here. And also, I have to just tell you, I know you will not relate to this unless you've lived overseas as many years as I have. I'm just glad to be back home in the land of Taco Bell and Cracker Barrel. Some of you can understand what I'm getting at. But especially that little yellow sign that says Waffle House. <laughs> Today I was joking with the people in the cafeteria saying, where are the chopsticks? It's just good to be back. And uh, more than anything, Audrey and I are just happy to be here with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who have a passion, a shared passion to go home. We are truly homesick for heaven. If you agree with that, say amen tonight. I want to also thank the Carolina Conference for inviting us to come and share this weekend. I want to thank you also, Carolina Conference, for giving us a booth space right next door here 
I encourage you to make your way over there sometime over the course of this weekend. We have a booth. We have some cards that talk about the challenges of the work in China. But we also have a request. And that is we, my wife, as our Adventist mission director, has compiled a list of over 60 cities, six zero cities in China, with a population of one million or more that does not have a single Seventh-day Adventist church. Some of these cities are over seven million without an Adventist presence. And we would like very much to, for you to come by. She will show you the list of these cities. And you can sign up to receive an email with details about that city so you can pray for those cities that God will do marvelous things there. Can you do that? Because I believe in the power of prayer. And if you could stop by the booth and we would be happy to give you some information and you can join us in praying for China. Before we go any farther, though, tonight, I want to invite you to have prayer with me and uh, pray that God will lead us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight. I pray that you, dear God, will be lifted up. I pray that as we talk and as we share from your word that you will help us set aside the distractions and that we will see Jesus and that we will long for heaven and that we will find ways in which you want to use us to hasten the day of your coming. And we pray this tonight in your name. Amen. Our church has a history, an official history, I might say, of 154 years. And when you look at this denomination that we call the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's amazing to see what God has done. Can I hear an amen? From just a small band of believers, you could calculate it between three and 5,000 back when it was organized officially, to now numbering close to 21 million all over the world, including in my country where we live and work, 450,000 Seventh-day Adventists worship there on a regular basis across China. Can you hear, say amen? Do you know how to say amen in Chinese? Amen. See, you already are starting to speak the language of heaven. I used to think Spanish was the language of heaven because that's what I grew up. I grew up in Central America, and everybody told me, el español es el lenguaje del cielo. Spanish is the language of heaven. But now I've lived, we've lived 15 years in China, and I've changed my mind. There are more Chinese. One out of six people in the world speak Mandarin Chinese. And so... You've already started, because I'm going to teach you a few things in Chinese over the next few days. You've learned how to say, I agree with that pastor, by saying, Amen. Amen. 21 million Adventists around the world, 500,000 close to that in the country of China. And we can see how God has led. In fact, in 2015, in Christianity Today and the January 22 issue, I read something fascinating. It said, and this is a non-Avenist author speaking of the Avenist church, and it said, the Seventh-day Avenist church is now the fifth largest Christian community in the world. Organized worldwide community, and I scratched my head. I said, what is she talking about? Then she began to outline the worldwide communities around the world. And when she finished, I said, you're right. You have the Catholics, you have the Eastern Orthodox, you have the Anglicans, you have the Assemblies of God, and we are the number five 
largest Christian coordinated movement all around the world. Can you say amen in Chinese? Excellent. 非常好。国不久，你们的中文比我的好。Not long from now, your Chinese will be better than mine. And we thank the Lord that every year we have more than a million who join the ranks of God's remnant church. This is wonderful. But I want you to know tonight that every year that a million join God's remnant church, 131 million are born to this human race. How will we reach, for example, the over 1 billion Muslims that, according to the Pew Research Group, in a recent article I read, said that the Muslim population would overtake the world Christian population by the year 2060. How will we reach them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How will we reach China, where, where we live, with 1.4 billion people and growing, the largest single unreached people group in the world, the largest atheist population in the world. 63% of the population say they are atheist, materialistic, secular. How are we going to reach them with this message of reconciliation through Jesus Christ? It seems to me honestly impossible. Let me be honest with you tonight. It seems to me beyond imagination. How can we reach, for example, the 30 million people in China's largest metropolitan area? And you're thinking Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. No, I'm talking about Chongqing. Chongqing is the largest metropolitan area with over 30 million people. And on any given Sabbath, you will find four small congregations there with no more than 200 worshiping on Sabbath. How can we do it? How can the prophecy stated by the Lord himself be fulfilled regarding the second coming of Christ? We're gathered here with the theme of homesick for heaven, but let's begin our talk tonight by looking at the obvious question. Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 says, and Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to how many nations? To all the nations, and then the end will come. How can this be? How will it happen? We want to and plan to be faithful Christians in the area where God has planted us, whether it be, as we heard tonight, Hickory, or whether it be Spartanburg, or whether it be China. It doesn't matter. We each here tonight want to be faithful disciples of Christ and share the good news, but how can we go to all these areas and face such great opposition? There are so many lost, so little time, so many so few bridges to connect us to them, how will it happen? I feel so overwhelmed when I walk through the big, massive train stations in China. And I say to myself, how, Lord, can these people be touched with the gospel of Christ? How can they meet my Savior? I would like to suggest to you tonight that we are asking the wrong question. And it finally hit me 
Rather than me ask that question that says, how can we? It seems impossible. How are we going to reach all these people? That is the wrong question, the Lord told me. The wrong question. The question should be, what can God do through one committed person constrained by the love of Jesus Christ? That's the correct question. Because God is not concerned with numbers to do His work. He's concerned with our commitment to be used by Him. If you agree with me, say amen. amen. The right question is, what can God do through one committed person constrained by the love of Christ? Remember the story of Jonathan? There in 1 Samuel 14. I love this story. If you recall, the Philistines who were a constant pain in the side of the Israelite kingdom were once again assembled, and the Bible says they were soldiers like the sand of the sea. And so as to explain what that meant, the writer of 1 Samuel says that there were 30,000 chariots assembled against the Israelites, 6,000 cavalry. And Israel, the Bible says, they had 600 men strong. Then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5, and 1 Samuel chapter 14. And after describing the context of this great army the Philistines had assembled to destroy the Israelites, you have a conversation between Jonathan and his shield bearer, his armor bearer, which goes something like this, taken right from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Would you, would you read that underlined portion with me? What, where is it? Is it not showing up? It's not showing up. It shows up here just fine. Okay, let me say it for you. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is good news. And so the story goes on to say what? Well, exactly what Jonathan said. To explain what took place. Numbers are not important to, to God. Remember what happened? They went up. Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they came to this cliff, and the Philistines were camped above. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, listen, this is what we're going to do. If they say to us, come on up, and we'll teach you a thing or two, we'll go up, and God will work a mighty miracle. But if they say to us, wait down there, you two scoundrels, we'll come and get you, then we better skedaddle, because uh, I think we need to wait for another day. And what happened? They got there, the Philistines saw them down at the base of the cliff, and they said, you two come on up here, and we'll teach you a thing or two. And they looked at each other and said, God is going to do amazing things. And the Bible says they clambered up that cliff. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered, what was the armor bearer thinking? This was Jonathan's idea, not his. And he's probably thinking, boy, I drew the short straw. 
How did I end up being the armor bearer of this guy? Now we're going to go die against 30,000 charioteers and the people. This is the end of the story. And as they get to the top, the Bible says there was an earthquake. The Bible says that there was a tremendous miracle and the Philistines started fighting against each other. And at the end of the day, there was a great victory on the part of God because one man, one person, and his armor bearer said, God is not constrained by numbers. God is not constrained by numbers. The same is true from a sister and her family of 14 who moved from the countryside to one of the largest cities in China in the northeast. Now it's an industrial powerhouse. And when they arrived there back in the mid-80s, late-80s, there were only 14 of them worshiping in their home on Sabbath morning. And, sister, and the sister and her brother and the family all would get together every Sabbath and they would go out during the week and share Bible studies and share the good news and then the numbers grew and the numbers grew and the first time I was able to go visit this church was about 2002, 2001 and I remember going on Sabbath morning in February and this would be like being up in New York or New England by the way this is how cold it was and going to the church at 8.30 in the morning in the church which now seated over 1,000 people was completely full and people were sitting outside on buckets in minus degree weather. We're talking about 30 degrees or below with their Bibles on their laps there all day. And now this same church not only has a church of 3,000 on Sabbath but have 120 church plants all around it. When I visit with this pastor and she tells me what God is doing she could have said, what can I do? There's just a few of us. We've never done any theological education. We don't know any. I'm not a pastor. What can we do when we're facing millions of people here in this massive city? What can we do? They didn't say that. They said, Lord, what do you want to do with me? That's the difference. Now they have schools. They're training young people to go out and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what God is looking for is not numbers. He's looking for committed disciples that know and love Him. If you are homesick for heaven right now, what He needs from you and me is total surrender. Just a few chapters later in the book of 1 Samuel, we are introduced to another dynamic young man. His name is David. I don't think that these two stories are back-to-back -back like this on, you know, by accident. I think that they're there for us to get the gist. David was the eighth and final son of Jesse. He was the little guy. The three older sons, you remember the story, they had gone off to fight with Saul against the Philistines. Eliab, Abinadab and Shema, they were all gone. They were the oldest. They were the strongest. They had been trained as soldiers, maybe. I don't really know. Somehow that they were sent out representing the Jesse clan. They got there, and they found out that this battle was like none other. They were a 
lined up against the Philistines across the valley of Elah and every morning they would come and face each other but what would happen they wouldn't fight they would listen as this giant of a man came out and stood across from them and yelled terrible things saying come now fight me one of you and whoever wins will be the master over the others and this was a massive man you know, when you look at the story that is painted of David at that point, it says that he took care of his father's sheep. It says that David was, was a simple musician. He was not the typical, what I would call, soldier, tough guy. He became an errand boy for his father. The father said, come on here, let me give you some parched grain. Take these ten loaves of, of bread to your brothers and, and also these ten pieces of cheese. Give it to the heads of the thousands and then find out what's going on and come and tell me. Well, he gets there, the Bible says, right as they're lining up for their morning ritual and Goliath comes out through the ranks and he's yelling and, and cursing the God of the Israelites and David is appalled. He says, how can you guys stand here like this and, and, and let this uncircumcised man speak against our God? Word of his defiant words slowly made their way back to King Saul and he was brought into his presence. And Saul said, you can't go fight him. You have no training. You have no armor. But David responded to Saul's concern there in in chapter 17, verse 36 and 37 by, seven, by saying, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And I don't know if it was because there were no other choices available, King Saul said, fine, go fight this man. And he said, the Lord be with you. Now you look at this battle and you recognize that the odds are stacked in Goliath's favor. Goliath is about three meters tall, about nine feet tall. The Bible says that his armor alone weighed 126 pounds just his armor. The spear tip on his spear was 15 pounds in size, and the spear handle itself was like a weaver's beam. It was massive. What was the situation? What could be done? And what about David? Well, he had fought lions. He had fought bears. But I would like to stop here a second, push the pause button and say what we are talking about tonight is very similar to what he was facing in terms of odds. When we sit here and we talk about the great challenges that, that are present around the world and we look at the people of China and we look at the people group of, of, um, of the Muslims around the world and the secular people, we could go on and on and say, wow, this is impossible. It cannot be done. Can we not? The odds are insurmountable. But I would like to say to you that all that God was looking for was a one believer, one follower of Christ that was willing, that was willing to walk through the lines of the army of Israel and go out into no man's land 
and face the giant and tell him what's if. Let me pause here a minute and ask you a question. Where is Eliab in this story now? Where is Big Brother? Where is the firstborn? Where is the brother who's had most training, who's gone to most worships up in Shiloh and offered the most sacrifices, who sat at the feet of the priest, who has been... Where is Shema? Where is Abinadab? Where is Eliab, the number one son of Jesse? The story tells us where he is. He's in the bunch of soldiers of the, of the Israelites, probably quaking in his boots and probably saying to himself, what am I going to tell my dad? My little brat brother, which, by the way, if you read the story there, it didn't seem like they had a very good relationship, Eliab and, and David. As soon as David said, well, I will go fight, Eliab almost smacks him on the back of the head and says, what's up with you? Where are those sheep you're taking care of? And what did David say in response? I'm not making this up. You can go read it tonight. He says, what did I say? Oh, it's right there. Okay. Thank you very much. You know what? The question that burns in my mind when I read this story again and again is, where is Eliab? Of all the sons of Jesse, he should have been the one that stood out and said, I'm willing to fight. Where was he? He was standing he was watching. He was a part of the crowd. He was doing nothing. And into this, into this tense, impossible situation walks David, willing to face the giant, willing to take that step that says, this is incredible. This is impossible. In fact, this is presumptuous. And he goes and faces this, this massive man. And I love the way that David addresses the Philistine. Look with me, if you can. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Now, I'm going to stop right here a minute. Please don't look anymore. Look at me. Look at me. Hello. Don't look anymore. Wait, I should go like this. Okay, don't look anymore. What's happening here is that David is responding to Goliath. If you read the story, Goliath is saying, What am I? Are you a kid? Am I a dog or something? Did you send a kid with a stick after me? And then he looks at the little kid, this David, this little young man, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you into pieces and feed you to the birds. Not a very nice thing to say. And what does David respond I don't know about you, but I might have been like, well, sir, I'm sorry, but I'm the one that got stuck with this job. Would you mind just making it quick? <laughs> but that's not what David says. He stands in... No By the way, where is David standing? Behind the Israelite army, nice and secure, with all the defensive perimeter around him? No. He is in no man's land. He is the closest to the enemy, meaning Goliath. And behind Goliath, he is the closest to the entire Philistine army. All of his buddies, all of his compatriots are behind him. And what does David say? Now I will go back to that, that slide. He said... 
He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. But that's not enough. He goes on and said, in this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Can you say amen? Every time I read that, I want to say amen in whatever language I can. Do you see what I'm saying here? He not only says to the giant, you got it wrong, you will die today. But he looks behind the giant at all these Philistines and says, and you guys, I'm going to feed you guys to the birds too. Can you imagine that? Talk about antagonizing your enemy. Then all the assembly shall know, this is the end of his speech, that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is, what? The Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Jonathan says, the Lord doesn't need numbers. He can save by many or by few. David comes along and says, the battle doesn't even belong to us. The mission is God's, not yours. All he needs is David's and Jonathan's who will boldly go into no man's land and say, use me, fill me, and do your work through me. Amen? For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into his hands. I love that. Brothers and sisters, I don't have the answers as to how we will finish the Great Commission. I don't have the answers, but I know that the battle belongs to the Lord. I don't know how it is that an entire nation like China right now with increasing, increasing difficulties in terms of religious uh, work and, and more and more barriers and laws constricting the work and freedoms of Christianity. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I know that the battle belongs to the Lord. And I know it's not by firepower. I know it's not by the number of literature or TV programs we produce. And by the way, all of these are great. It is by God's power, touching hearts in amazing ways, that we will see the work finished. You see, my brothers and sisters, in 1949, when basically everything we knew to be our church and its organization in China, everything in the early 1949, 1950, 51, everything was taken. We had 13 Adventist hospitals in China. They were all taken away. We had seminaries. We had schools, elementary, high schools. We had churches galore, 21,000 members all across China in 1949. Can you imagine this coming Sabbath after camp meeting, you go to church and there's a padlock on your door, on the church door saying it's no longer yours, the government has taken it, what would you do? All the churches in the Carolina Conference confiscated, closed. There's no church anymore, no Adventist church. There's no Carolina Conference. There's nothing. This is what happened, basically, in a matter of two or three years in the early 50s. And at that time, we had 21,000 members, and for about 30, 40 years, we didn't know what was happening in China. But after things started opening up in the mid-80s and late-80s, we began to see that the church had grown from 21,000 members to 200,000 members. Amen? And now we have over 400,000 members, and that's not because it's easy there. 
Just a few days ago, I was meeting with some of our leaders in China, and we were talking about evangelism and doing public evangelism. And, and I said, guys, with the situation going on now, are you sure you're able to do this? And they looked at me and said, what's up with you, Bob? They didn't say it that way because they don't speak English. <laughs> they said, Fu Musha, nobody calls me Falkenberg there. We don't use my English name. My, la my Chinese name is Pastor Fu. And they call me Fu Musa. They say, Pastor Fu, no problem. We will do over the goal that we have set of 750 campaigns in China. We will blow past that goal. And if, if, if you only understood what that means right now, when last year alone we had 216 churches closed last year in China. And they're telling me, no problem. And every one of those 216 churches, all those churches and members have now become 800 church congregations. Because they haven't closed down and gone back and pouted in a corner. They're now meeting in different homes and evangelizing in their communities. Can I hear an amen? You see, God isn't looking for, for, for some dynamic new strategy. He is looking for committed disciples who are willing to say, here I am send me. Here I am, send me. What happened with Eliab? You can look from 1 Samuel 17 all the way to the end of Scripture and you will not find one further mention of his name. He is not mentioned anymore in Scripture. Why was the firstborn of Jesse the leader amongst his family clan, absent spiritually at the battle with the Philistines, but yet the youngest little shepherd boy present and willing to be used. Why? What happened? I would like to suggest to you a very simple answer. One knew about God and one knew God. One had the knowledge of God, knew what sacrifices to bring, at what time of year to bring them to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. One understood all the dynamics and maybe even the theology and the history of the Israelite people. But one knew God intimately and was willing to walk with him out into no man's land and face down a giant and tell him that his day had come. Are we like Eliab or like David? This is the burning question as we look to the second coming. This is the most important question for any of us who are part of God's remnant church. Is do we know God or only know about Him? Do we know Him and His power in our lives? Or do we just know Him merely intellectually? I love this quote from Ellen White. She says, I saw that the Spirit of the Lord has been dying away from the church. Please, please read this as the Lord speaking to you tonight, okay? Read this not as 
you're hoping that the sister on the other side of this auditorium or the brother is listening carefully. This is for you and me, amen? Now listen to what she's talking to us about here tonight. I saw that the Spirit of the Lord has been dying away from the church. I saw that the mere argument of the truth will not move souls to take a stand with the remnant. The servants of God must have the truth where? In the soul. And then she goes on to say it. Said the angel, and by the way, anytime you see her say, the angel said this, I really listen. This is God speaking through his messenger to his prophet, saying, they must get it warm from glory. Carry it in their bosoms and pour it out in the warmth and earnestness of the soul to those that hear. Now, for those of you kinesthetic beings out there, Listen, can you smell it? Can you feel it? What Ellen White is saying is it cannot just be staid doctrinal truth. She says here that the angel told her they must, that means you and I must have this truth, which is Jesus Christ, this faith, this hope, this reality in our heart burning. It must, we must get it warm from glory and carry it in their bosoms and pour it out in the warmth and earnestness of the soul to those that hear. Have you ever been outside in a mighty, cold, frigid day and your hands can barely move and when they do move, they hurt? And finally, you can get inside next to the fire and sure enough, there is a pot of boiling water and you put it into a cup with a little cocoa in there. And then you hold it up against you like this, don't you? It feels so good. It's real. How would you like a day-old cold drink after coming in from the bitter cold of the outdoors? Useless. Ellen White is telling us here that unless the faith that you have right now, tonight with God, is warm... And I don't know about you, but first time I read this, to me it sounded like a bakery. Pulling that hot bread out. Can you hide fresh baked bread from anyone in the house? Huh? Oh, man, when we went to Crackle Barrel yesterday, <laughs> the biscuits, the biscuits. Excuse me, ma'am, could we have another plate of those, please? I am trying to tell you that this is exactly what she's saying our relationship with Jesus must be like. It's got to be warm. It's got to be fragrant. It's got to be real. It's got to be tasty. It's got to be a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? David knew God. He held him in his bosom. When he faced the giant, he was not concerned because God had been with him facing the bear and facing the lion and facing his big brother. He had experienced God. It wasn't just an idea. It was life to him. It was his breath. It was everything. And so it was nothing to him to go out and face this giant. They must get it warm from glory, carry it in their bosoms, and pour it out in the warmth and earnestness of the soul to those that hear. It's a personal walk. It's daily walk. It's a real walk. It's a trusting walk. It's stepping out of our comfort zone kind of walking. Amen? 
Can we grow in faith unless we exercise that faith? It starts right here in the heart. The battle that Jonathan faced against insurmountable odds, the battle that David faced against insurmountable odds didn't just come as a spur-of-the-moment crazy decision. It came based on a walk in a faith in a loving relationship with their God. In fact, when you look at 1 Samuel 17, go back tonight, underlying when David speaks of God, he calls him the living God, the living God, the living God, the living God. Is your God living tonight? Amen. We must be faithful to the call. In Acts of the Apostles, page 362, I read, He who serves under the blood-stained banner of Emmanuel will have that to do, which will call for heroic effort and patient endurance. As the enemy presses the attack against him, he turns to the stronghold for aid. And as he brings to the Lord the promises of the word, he is strengthened for the duties of the hour. The reason I'm sharing this with you is that David knew his stronghold. David knew where to turn. He knew where his strength came from. That's why he said the battle belongs to who? The Lord. A few years ago, Audrey and I took a group of pastors from China to Israel, and we made our way to Azeka and Sokoth, the two towns. You could still tour the, the, uh, the Tel, the ancient city of Azeka that overlooks the Valley of Elah. And we went down, we had to go down to the little stream bed and pick up a stone. And I am pretty sure that this is exactly the stone that David used. Can you see it okay here? Maybe zoom in a little bit more. You can't argue with me, I know, but I think it is. It's kind of pointy, you see? But it wasn't the stone. It wasn't the stone. Do do you get this? It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't his strength. It wasn't that that Goliath had pushed his, his helmet back just a tad. It was none of that because the battle belongs to the Lord. And I don't know how we'll reach Carolina for God. I don't have the strategy in place to reach China yet or the Islamic countries or the Hindu countries, but I know that this mission belongs to the Lord. And I know that all he's asking for are Davids and Jonathans who could just get up in the morning and say, here I am. Use me. I am fully surrendered to you, completely committed to you. Please use me, O loving Redeemer. I place myself in your arms. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if I look crazy out there, it's okay because I'm crazy for you. And if people say I'm too radical, that's okay because I'm radically in love with you. What God is looking for right now at this point in earth's history. We are living at the end of time. He is looking for people who are sold out completely to Jesus Christ. That to me is the right question. What can God do through you? One disciple who is fully committed to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Tonight, my friend, brother and sister, Are you an Eliab who can map out our doctrines very clearly? 
who grew up in the church maybe, who was an Adventist and wears the badge very, very proudly, and I respect that? Or are you a David who wakes up every morning and says, what adventure do you have for me today? I am thine, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these two stories back to back right there in Scripture reminding us that as we now face the tremendous challenges of an end-time world that seems to be fraying and splitting and going crazy as well as being hardened in their beliefs which are so distant from the faith of Jesus. And at a time when we can so easily just say, what I do doesn't matter. Lord, thank you for reminding us tonight that you are looking for Davids who will stand, for Jonathans who will step forward. Not because they have the answers, but because they know the answer, Jesus Christ. They know their God. Fill us with your spirit and mobilize us for this end time so that we can see you soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.